Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and in today's episode, which is the second episode in our new short form series, which we're calling Bytes, we will dig into some of the things that we highlight and mention in our regular Digital Works newsletter. If you're not already signed up to the newsletter, you can sign up on our website, substract.com forward slash digital works. Joining me today and for all of the episodes in this series is the person who puts that newsletter together, my colleague, Katie. Today, we're going to talk about the newsletter that was sent out on September the 22nd, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ash. So we've picked three things that you mentioned in the most recent edition of the newsletter. Today, we will be discussing an article by Ryan Broderick in The Verge titled The End of the Googleverse. We'll be looking at a piece from Game Rant, which covers a Skyrim player who is working on an AI-powered mod, which would allow players to speak with NPCs. And lastly, we will talk about an article from Catalyst entitled How to Understand Your Current Digital Costs, and then in brackets, Budgeting for Digital, Part 1 of 3. (laughs) So let's start with this article in The Verge. It opens with, for two decades, Google search was the invisible force that determined the ebb and flow of online content. Now, for the first time, its cultural relevance is in question. What does this article tell us? (laughs) What does it tell us? So Ryan Broderick, who wrote this article, is an amazing cultural commentator. He has a newsletter called Garbage Day, which I would highly, highly recommend. And, you know, there's a lot of people who commentate on the kind of the internet and sort of, you know, how the digital affects kind of our society and so on. But Ryan really writes smart stuff. So I think what is interesting to me about this article is there is a sort of historical interest in it in the sense of just reminding us of kind of where Google started from and how it absolutely fundamentally changed the internet, changed how we obviously looked for information, found information, and what that meant in terms of things like SEO and how that became a whole profession. And that now, however, because for a few reasons, which he goes into in the article, Google search is becoming a lot less critical than it was. And not just critical in terms of how people use it, but how that is actually affecting how we get information society if that makes sense does that make sense (laughs) it does make sense when i was reading it it reminded me of another article that i think well you certainly shared with me i don't know if you shared in the newsletter which was about the in shittification of tiktok an article by Corey doctorow in that Corey describes how these new platforms come onto the scene solve a problem in a really brilliant way And then as they gain popularity, they start to bloat and they start to degrade and become shit, basically, because of ads, because of commercial drivers. Is there a sense of that is what's happening with Google? You know, in the article, Ryan talks about now you don't actually get to any organic results until, you know, below the fold, as it were. You know, you have to go past a lot of paid advertising 
Google's focus is perhaps less crystal clear, sort of laser focused on search than it perhaps once was. Yes. And also when Google search first came along, social media in its current form wasn't a thing. So, you know, if you think about how it managed to completely dominate the web at that time and how now it's common knowledge, but for a lot of particularly younger generation, TikTok is a much more relevant search engine. There is something fundamentally about the notion of how we rank information and what Google did versus what something like TikTok does and what that means for society. So again, in the article, he talks about Google Reader, which I used to use all the time. It's amazing. So it would take RSS feeds from blogs and other sites, aggregate it all in one place. And so the idea was that you could create this like magazine or whatever that was filled with the stuff that you're interested in. And and they retired Google Reader maybe like five, six years ago. And the reason that's kind of important is it signaled that Google was sort of less interested in this notion of of sort of aggregating information and distributing it. And and yeah, like, you know, more about kind of ads and the associated products. Obviously now they're looking hard at AI and Bard and things like that. So I do think it speaks to a a really seminal change around how information gets yeah, it gets ranked really and, and what gets priority on the web, I guess. Yeah, and I think when you sent me this article from The Verge, I sent you one back in The Atlantic, which looks at the antitrust suit that Google are currently fighting. And they do feel a bit uh, embattled, I think, from a number of different mm. directions at the moment. You know, as you said, user behavior is shifting. There are new entrants in terms of how people find information. And I think that's important for people that might be listening to this because it impacts and directly affects how people are going to be finding and reaching your platforms and services and and content on the internet. Definitely, for sure. So next up, we've got a piece in Game Rant by Mark Kiva from earlier this year, which looks at a Skyrim player who is working on an AI-powered mod, which will <laughs> allow players to speak with NPCs. So there, there is a, possibly a few, th- a few things here. Number one, Katie, what's Skyrim? Number two, what's a mod? And number three, what's an NPC? Okay. So I'm not a gamer, I will say. So I, I say this, I know there are many, many people out there who are avid gamers and experts on games. So Skyrim is a game. And a mod is something where you can kind of create something that changes a, a game, that adds to a game. Skyrim is a game where you can do that. You can add, so it's mod is short for modifications, right? And NPC is a non-playable character. So an NPC typically in a video game is a character that you can't actually be or play. Normally it has a few sort of standard lines that it says, perhaps it might not actually say anything. So, yeah, that's what all those things are. And why is this interesting? That is a good question. I think it is interesting because, well, first off, it is the case that gaming and porn are the two sectors that always lead the way in terms of innovation and the technology and the internet. And 
I would say this is an example of that. There is a few reasons why I think it's interesting. I mean, on a fundamental level, just imagine for a second what that means for imaginative worlds, for games, for any kind of artistic content, actually, where you have characters and you have a storyline and, and a narrative. At the moment, these AI, you know, tools like ChatGBT, which is the tool that he's sort of using to create this mod, yes, they might be a bit basic, but very quickly they will become obviously much, much better. And there is something fascinating about the idea that people will be able to not just play these games, not just interact with things, but actually completely change you know how characters are what happens and from an arts and culture perspective I guess there are questions there around what that might mean going forward in terms of online digital artistic type content and the interactions with users and audiences and it's a complete shift in the I want to say a lot of words now the primacy of the authorial perspective I guess and I used to work with film and tv directors and some of them found it very difficult to think about how you might direct a video game because obviously the player has so much more agency than a traditional audience member for film and TV. And this then feels like it takes that massively further in the a sort of loss of control from the person directing the original thing. Exactly. And so then it raises questions of, well, how do you maintain artistic integrity or not even integrity, but the sort of quality of something perhaps. But also on the flip side, it may be a way to draw in new audiences into this type of content who have, you know, traditionally not been, let's say, audiences of theatre or, you know, the sorts of shows that start and finish and have a timeline and you don't interact with. You know, this kind of technology could be a way to sort of draw people in who haven't been previously. Last but not least, we've got an article which is on Catalyst from Kat Ainsworth at Dot Project, which looks at budgeting for digital. Now, Catalyst for those of you who don't know, is a network helping the UK third sector grow its digital skills and processes. And this article is part of a series on budgeting for digital. What does it tell us? The reason for including this article is, first of all, Catalyst has some great resources for anybody who you know is looking for anything really in terms of practical support around digital this is the first of, they say, a three-part series about budgets and digital and digital costs. And what I like about Catalyst is they take a very pragmatic approach, obviously, because they are focused on the third sector. They understand, you know, budget constraints and, and so on. So this is a, just a very practical article about how you approach thinking around digital costs. So it looks at, you know, doing an audit of what you're currently spending and why thinking about what you're paying and whether things are essential or nice to have and doing a bit of an audit with partners in terms of, you know, am I getting value for money if I'm paying X amount per month for such and such, you know, type of support. So it's not anything, you know, groundbreaking, but it's I think it's it's just a really useful primer on how to think about digital costs. 
Yeah, and certainly, you know, both you and I have inquiries from clients on a semi-regular basis, asking us to look at their digital budgets, asking them what they should be budgeting for specific types of digital projects. So yes, it's not groundbreaking, but it's a question that people are being asked to answer on a regular basis. And I'm just thinking of a piece of work we did relatively recently where the digital budgets, that question of value for money and sort of return on investment was something the organization was asking itself perhaps for the first time Mm. and feels like maybe a conversation more digital folks should be pushing for rather than Mm. just we've got an amount of money, we spend it on these things, actually being in these times of constrained resources a bit more can't think of a better word than ruthless about what they're Mm. getting for the money they're spending yeah absolutely and and I think one of the things the cultural sector always has is a question around what's an appropriate amount of money to spend on you know this type of system or or for a new website how much should we budgeting we get asked that a lot one of the things I think would be interesting to explore by somebody perhaps a sector support organization is actually you know doing some kind of benchmarking around these sorts of things obviously we can advise in terms of you know generally what percentage of your annual income say you should put aside to build a new site but there are of course lots of other costs that organizations are incurring around digital and I do think it would be you know it would be good to have that explored and there to be some generally available benchmarks for the sector Yeah, certainly. And I know organisations like Spectrix have in the past given some guides, I believe, to organisations that they work with. But certainly, you know, costs are not going down. You know, the wages that Mm. the expert staff required to design and build a website are increasing. Other costs have gone up over the past three to five years. And it feels like probably those guides need revisiting. Yeah. As you say, on a sector wide basis. For sure. And I, of course, I would say this, wouldn't I? But the other thing is, you know, in terms of cutting costs, I would very strongly advise that things like a website is not the place to do it, given that it's, you know, it's a commercially imperative tool. It's so fascinating to me how different organizations approach and think about the cost of digital, digital tools, digital development, etc. Because some have a very good understanding of the you know the need to invest and others it's more like what's the absolute minimum we can get away with which I understand but it's false economy I would say. So that's your lot for today. As I said last time, this is a new thing. So any thoughts, comments, questions, opinions, we are very open and welcoming of those. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of the podcast on our website, where you can also sign up for the Digital Works newsletter, substract.com forward slash digital works. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is what we will continue to call it. We are at digital underscore works underscore. Katie is at Katie Moffat. And I am at Big Little Things. Our theme tune is Vienna Beat by Blue Dot Sessions. And last but not least, thanks to Mark Cotton for his editing support on this episode. See you again soon. Mm-hmm.